Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. It's great to be back with you again. We have a great show for you today. I have an incredible guest with me today. You may have heard of him before. He is a longtime industry leader, a board director at several organizations and not-for-profits. He is an honorary consul to Kazakhstan. He's a national director of the Kickstart for Kids organization, and he's currently the chairman and CEO of Flowtech Industries. He is Mr. John Gibson. John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. How are you today? Well, every day's a good day. So, you know, I feel blessed anytime I can get up and try to make a positive difference. So glad to be here. Amen to that. Any day above ground, right? I hear you on that. Some of our listeners who listen to some of the other podcasts on the Oil and Gas Global Network may have, have heard some of the interviews you've given over the past few months. And certainly the one you gave with the ESG Elevate podcast with, with Sean McCoy and, and his buddy Eric was, was fantastic. I would refer any of our listeners, if you want a little more background on John, to listen to that episode because it, it was really fantastic. We're not going to cover all the same ground that Sean and, and Eric did with you. But you know, one of the things that I heard in that interview that you gave was really you made reference to how, as a very young man joining, I think it was the U.S. Army, really was a life-changing experience for you. So I want to take you all the way back there. Maybe you could elaborate, share with us a little bit about how that experience really did transform you. I'll take you back a little earlier than that to tell you why I ended up in the Army, best I can tell. When I was a young guy, my parents, my dad was doing really well, and they put me into uh, private school. And I was really advanced. I was taking calculus by the time I was in the seventh, eighth grade. And then our family's fortune changed, and I was sent to a public school. And in that public school, the highest level of mathematics they offered in high school was algebra at the school I attended. And as a consequence, I was bored beyond your imagination. (laughs) And being bored, I entertained myself with the experimentation and other things. So by the time I got through with my senior year, I was in a situation where my behavior was bad enough that I was, I literally had fairly high probability of just dying, going to prison, or a individual said, you know, you should go and serve our country. And that seemed like a great way to get out of the, the rut that I was in. So I joined the United States Army. I was not drafted. I, I volunteered and, and I was blessed to have served three years in the, the U.S. Army. And having done that, I would tell you that no matter who you are, that serving the country is a point of great pride with me today. I'm glad that I did. I would have never wished that I hadn't have done that. And it allowed international travel. It was immersion into diversity for someone from the South, because in many ways, our military is the point of the spear for cultural change in the country. It's where we blend everybody together to do the mission of the country. It was an outstanding opportunity, and I would say that the U.S. Army saved my life. Wow. So talk a little bit more about that. So once you're in the Army and you're in this entirely new world, you're going to places you probably never dreamed of before, interacting and working alongside folks from all different backgrounds, different parts of the world. What was it about that experience that started to transform you? Maybe share a story or two. It's fantastic. I mean, one of the best ways for you to appreciate diversity is... It's being immersed in it. So I go from being in a, a fairly elite 
family in South Georgia to having an African-American roommate. And he and I became best friends. We'd swap uniforms and actually go out and stand formation for one another once in a while. And so it was a it was an exciting time of sort of learning about other people and growing in appreciation. It was my first experience listening to the Isley Brothers. But it's just a fantastic opportunity to learn diversity both internationally as well as in the U.S. The leadership courses were outstanding because you're trying to motivate young men and women around you to accomplish a mission. Probably the best leadership training I've ever received was while I was in the Army. And I'm a pretty good student, so I watch other people and how they lead and learn from that. And so I had a chance to really see some great leaders. We had a Sergeant First Class Montgomery was probably the first person that had an influence. I don't have long enough to tell you all that he did to me to punish me, but he finally laughed one day and he said, I don't believe I'll ever break your spirit. And I laughed with him. And then after that, we became close friends. I mean, it was uh, just a fantastic time and it's a wonderful experience. And it was at a time when serving the country was a hugely positive, great, great pride in the country. And we were emerging post-Vietnam and trying to rebuild the military. And so proud to serve the country. Well, thank you for your service. And then that experience in the military clearly shaped you and into some of the things that you would be able to do in the future and the various leadership roles that you've held. When you went into your corporate career, tell us about that first leadership role that you had in a corporate context, slightly different than the military, I would imagine. And how prepared did you feel for that? What did you learn during that time? Well, one more comment on the military, though. Honestly, to be a great CEO, you both give orders and you take orders. And people begin to think that as you move up in an organization that you begin to tell people what to do. But in truth, you're always will have a boss, whether it be a board of directors, shareholders, a chairman. And so I think one of the greatest gifts of the military is learning how to take orders. And then it's it's very easy to give orders. It's sometimes much harder to learn to take orders. But my first leadership role, other than being sergeant in the U.S. Army, was I got a chance to run subsurface research for Chevron in La Habra, California. And I worked with a team of people that are some of the brightest the most experienced quality people I've worked with in my career. Steve Darty was a geophysicist, Dushan Jovanovich, Trim Smith, Paula Hoffman. And we worked for a gentleman named Don Paul. And it was just one of the best learning experiences of working with PhDs, working with extremely talented people. And there's different kinds of difficulty in in managing and depending upon the staff that you have, it's a, there's a lot of difference between mowing lawns and managing research. <laughs> so you're working with all these very intelligent, highly accomplished people. What did that do to you in terms of your leadership style of managing those folks? It probably enhanced my humility. All of them were smarter than I am. I mean, there's no question. I worked with Ross Hill, Chuck Sword, just many others. And as a consequence, you always knew that in an engagement, you'd better be listening as much as talking because they had far better knowledge of the technologies that we were working on than I did. And so learning to understand the contributions of other people and integrating them into success of an organization is probably one of the very first things that I learned as a supervisor under Chevron. And then Chevron also taught integrity. I mean, it's a great company, great people. And I was 
really blessed to be there too, because you get a chance to work with a company that takes seriously its social obligations, its environmental obligations. And that shaped me a lot to, I think, what is necessary today in the industry. And a lot of that's due to my experience, whichever. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's talk about your first CEO role. I believe it was with Emerson and their Paradigm Group. Is that right? Well, actually, no, it's a good guess. <laughs> but I started out at Zycor working for Jim Downing, who was you know one of the nominees for Entrepreneur of the Year from Ernst Young, I believe. And Jim was a very paternal man. He was a fantastic leader, and he had founded Zycor. And I came in to work from him, and he developed some health issues and vertigo shortly after I arrived. And I was named CEO of Zycor, which was a division of Landmark. And so I had 100 people, and I let go half of them. I had about $12 million in expense and about $6 million in revenue. And so I was just trying to get to break even. But the biggest experience there was I, I spent most of my time with customers asking the following question. Why aren't you buying product from us? And what do I need to do to get you to be a customer and to, to use our product to, for your organization? And I took a lot of notes and I came back and we did the things that they needed and they bought the product that we were selling. And we had tremendous success at Zycor, mainly due to having a direct interaction with customers. How, I guess, rare is that these days that you see you know, people at the CEO level that are willing to roll up their sleeves and make the calls and go out and sit with their customers to learn more? I mean, I'm sure it happens some, but it's not something that you, you hear about a lot anymore. It's also dependent on the size of the company. I mean, when you're at a, a pico cap company, right, where you're you're worth fifty million dollars, as a CEO, you're your chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> and it's kind of funny at being at Zycor and, and working with Jim and, and working at Landmark, Zycor was really special in that we could only recognize revenue when the trucks left the premises. So there was occasionally we would be downloading trucks on the dock in order to get them out on time. And I've cooked hamburgers for the people loading trucks. I mean, it's you really understand how the business works from a supply chain revenue recognition and in a hands-on way. And how often does that happen today? Not nearly enough. I mean, not nearly enough. I succeeded Bob Peebler, who was a great visionary at Landmark as CEO. That was the second CEO role that I had. And I still went down and answered support telephone calls coming in at the desk for our products about once a month, working with David Verdun, who ran support. So I'd go take telephone calls from customers. And it's, that, that's nothing. incredible. That's it incredible. Fun. It was fun. <laughs> I would answer the phone. Hello, you've reached Landmark Support Desk. It's John Gibson, CEO. Can I help you? <laughs> and, and they would literally say, no, it's not. And I'd go, yes, it is. Yeah, wrong number. Huh? I must have called the wrong number here. And I could actually help with some products, which was kind of funny, but otherwise I'd say, let me route you to a specialist on Stratworks or on ZMAP or, you know, SiceWorks. And, but it was that desire to understand how the business actually worked. And that's still fundamental to me that I think has caused me to have, you know, reasonably good success, particularly in what I do, which is trying to turn companies around. Mm, yeah. So you've hit on a few of the, I think, key attributes of lots of the leaders that, that we talk about on our show. And this curiosity, wanting to learn about your customers, wanting to learn more about your people, being comfortable, not being the smartest guy in the room, but your job really being to put people in the right roles and, and help them be successful, get the work done through other people. 
one of the things that that we haven't talked about yet that I know is just critically important, something that you're well known for is a leader as mentor, being able to mentor other people in your organization and develop employees to help them get the most out of their potential. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your point of view on that and how you've developed that skill over time. That's another interesting question. You know, it's mentoring implies that I know something that I can teach them or they can learn from me. I often learn from others more than I, I'm willing to admit or or more than people realize. So when you help others, you see yourself in them and where you have shortcomings. But mentoring, I help a lot of young executives, ones that work for me, and I've got a pretty good, I won't say following because that sounds like I'm doing a <laughs> podcast, but I've got a number that I coach outside of work and I meet with them regularly to talk about their careers and give both life advice and business advice. And I try to explain to them, every single person you talk to is an individual and they're different. And I'll try to use a sports analogy here to understand my philosophy around being CEO. If you were coaching a professional football team and you were the offensive coordinator and you got tapped to be the head coach, the very first thing you need is an equal in, on your staff that's a defensive coordinator because that's not your strength. And so no matter what role you're in, you have to know your, your strengths and then know how to augment your strengths. And there's some great books out there on, on that topic, but you've got to know it, to really be good at what you do. You have to know what you're not good at and make sure that people around you complement that and give you the ability to be as successful at your weakness as you are at your strength. And so there's some things that I know I don't do well. I won't actually admit to them here on the podcast, but I surround myself with people that do that extremely well. And then I depend upon them for that. And so never try to do what other people do, be rule number one. So I would never tell somebody that took my place, do what I do or have the culture that I have. Know yourself really, really well. Surround yourself with the people that you need. That's why when you become CEO, you often need to change out the majority of the people reporting to you because those really fit the style and strengths of the previous CEO, not necessarily your style and strength. And you have to find the team that really executes in a way that it's complementary to what you do. Mm. And so you have spent a lot of time mentoring younger executives and, and even folks that are outside your company. So we know that leaders can have a really big impact even outside the four walls of their own business. And you've been involved in several organizations over the years and not-for-profits. You've been involved with the Kickstart for Kids program for I think almost 20 years now. I know that's a very important organization near and dear to your heart. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that organization was so important and how you sustained that, that passion for over 20 years now. Well, it's it's hard not to love Kickstart Kids. It it really started out with uh, Kick Drugs Out of America with Chuck Norris, and it's evolved now to where it's really a great standalone program for kids where martial arts is taught in the school systems uh, throughout the Houston area, in fact, often in inner city schools, and so that we really are targeting diversity. But it's about giving kids self-esteem. And so the belt progression and the feeling of confidence in yourself through martial arts about building character and honesty and humility, it's about teaching them to be great citizens. And I just, I don't know that you can invest in a better cause than building the character and self-esteem of the children in this country today. And so I'm absolutely delighted to play a small part as I do with Kickstart 
and just, you know, I hope that people will continue to invest in kids, both their time and their money so that we can ensure the future of the, this country. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I love it when folks at your level are still involved with their hands on with kids like that. I spend some time volunteering as a baseball coach for, for nine-year-old boys, and it, it's probably the most fun and rewarding thing that I do every week. There's not a minute I spend doing that that doesn't feel like time well spent. That comes through pretty clearly as you talk about your involvement with this group. It's pretty exciting to see how things go. I taught Sunday school for a seventh graders in a church here in Houston. And many, many years later, I was on a plane and the flight attendant, they were short one attendant from what they needed to do the safety demonstration. I don't know what the flight attendant was doing, but I got stood up and picked up the belt buckle and started doing the demonstration just like <laughs> I was a flight attendant, <laughs> just my typical misbehaving. And so, and everybody was laughing and I had the oxygen mask and I put it over my face and put the bands around my head and showed them how to do the buckle. Then I sat down and a young man came back and punched me in the shoulder really hard. And he said, Mr. Gibson, you haven't changed at all. And it's so good to see you. And he was a seventh grade student in the Sunday school class. And here he is in his mid twenties. And we still are sitting talking about what a great time we had at that time. And you go, that's where the real reward is in this life is when you can make some positive difference on somebody that can last for that period of time and still be something that they they look back favorably and have enjoyed it. All right, John, we have to update your bio now. We've got to add on call center representative and flight attendant. I didn't see that listed on your formal bio when I was when I was reading through yeah, it. Amateur veterinarian too. I do most <laughs> of the vet work out at the farm. So, <laughs> oh, that's well. There we go. We, we need some more paper to complete your bio there. Hey, I can't have you on my show and not get your perspective on this because it's something that everybody in the industry is talking about. Now we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit, but the energy transition initiative going on in the, in the world, but specifically in Houston too, right now is having an impact across all parts of the industry, right? And I, I wonder from a CEO perspective and as a director perspective, you think about the kinds of leaders that are going to be needed to really drive that sort of change forward. In the industry, I mean, what comes to mind for you in terms of how the role of the leader is going to be shifting to support this initiative? I'll use concrete examples that are real. I won't call any names, but I've been in meetings a decade and a half ago where an individual said, if we had known that they would have prevented us from drilling because eagles were nesting, we'd have cut those trees down. And you go, now that's a completely inappropriate response, no, no matter whether you believe in climate change or not, it was just wrong. And I think the transition the industry's gone through is the people that say things like that are almost entirely out of the industry today. You have people that understand ESG, you have people that are committed to a lower carbon future. And I think we're emerging to having great leadership that is that understands the duties and obligations of the companies that we shepherd and we that we're responsible for. Now, the lower carbon, I mean, a lot of people like to argue one way or another, but I'm actually really excited about it and have been for a long, long time. I believe that the oil and gas industry and our ability to remove CO2 and to minimize it is going to allow us to be the industry for inexpensive creation of hydrogen and that we are on a journey to be a hydrogen economy in the U.S., and we don't fully see it yet because we get a little confused with the EV. But when you look at EV, that all you're doing is moving combustion from one location to another. 
And that doesn't impress me at all. So I'm not excited about electric vehicles. I am excited about truly making a difference in emissions. And so I, I do, I've got a paper coming out on the end of combustion. And because you can't control the byproducts that occur when you, you use combustion to create energy and transition that to the work that you want done. And so I think we're in the right industry to provide low cost, easily available, you know, present in every country, the hydrogen that's necessary to drive a hydrogen economy and to overcome energy poverty. So look for our industry to be strong and to be very aware of the consequences of what we do and to be viable for the next hundred years. Well, and there are so many good things happening across the industry, right? And maybe people who don't listen to podcasts like this might not hear about those as easily. So, I mean, I, I wonder your perspective, you know, how can the industry as a whole do a better job of telling that story of really highlighting the great things that are being done to improve living conditions, to improve the environment and in many different aspects? I mean, the narrative can be sort of set against the industry in a way. So how do industry leaders start to take that back a little bit? I wish I had permission to name these customers, but we are working really hard to eliminate groundwater contamination here at Flotec. And so we've partnered with a couple of our customers to eliminate the use of BTEX, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, xylene, which are known to be carcinogenic and respiratory issues arise from being in contact with it or dermatological issues. And we have biodegradable, renewable products that perform better that are similarly priced, that can be substituted. And so what I'm excited about is customers that are not looking just at the emissions or just looking at the volume of water. They're concentrating on the totality of what they need to do to be an ESG company. And so they're saying, we do not want to inject into the subsurface chemistries that might cause future liabilities. And we're addressing that now with forward-thinking companies, and we're, we're so excited about it. Our business will go up by over 300% from Q1 to Q4 in eliminating BTEX. And I think it'll probably be our fastest growing segment in 2022 and beyond because we, we simply need to be good stewards of the planet that we live on. And I think that's where our industry's going. And we're going to be minimizing impacts, minimizing the long term. We're really, that's probably the most exciting. It's not just quarter to quarter here. We're doing things that are going to make this a better place 100 years from now. That is exciting. And it's great to hear a CEO really talk about everything from that perspective. You are a business and you do have business results to deliver but there's a bigger picture here for the companies in the industry that, that truly are making a difference. Yeah, you have no social license to operate if you can't do it responsibly. And I think we all understand that. And it's a part of our DNA today. And surprisingly, it's not just the young CEOs that feel that way. Some of them in my age range, sort of in the twilight of their career, are probably the biggest advocates and catalysts for making these changes because we think this industry can be strong for the next hundred years. Oh, well said, John. Well said. John, it has been my pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate your perspectives today. Thank you for making time for us. Well, you were very kind to call me. I feel privileged and honored when somebody even wants to talk to me. So I appreciate that. So 
Thanks a lot. We've had John Gibson from Float Tech Industries, the chairman and CEO there with us today. Thank you again for listening to our show. We'll be back soon. If you are liking these interviews that we're doing, please go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access the show and leave us a review. We appreciate those reviews. And don't forget also to send me a note at ryan.sanford at oggn.com. If you have suggestions for future shows, interview guests, that sort of thing, I'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, everybody, take care. Take care.